Well, good morning, everyone. That sounds really loud. What other church has a director of engagement? So if you are single and want to be married, see Annette Fritchie. She's got it all light, all outlined. It's a 90-day program from here to engagement. Thank you, Annette, for being so creative. We live in uh, difficult times right now, don't we? It is, uh, it's rough out here. Um, so if you have your bulletin, uh, it has the key text that I'm going to be using and also an outline on page two. I don't know if I've seen a more difficult time than this since uh, the 60s when I was in college and there were urban riots all through the country and protests in Vietnam. It was a turbulent period. In fact, it has a nickname, the, the turbulent 60s. But the time we live in now is even more unique than that because at no time have the values of our country been more challenged than they are today. But I want to get past what seems to be the obvious problems. And I want to talk about the problems from a spiritual point of view, from a 30,000 viewpoint about what God is doing in the world and how we as Christians um, can and should respond. So the first point on my outline is we need to understand the problem beneath the problem. I mean, the problem is racial animosity and division, political division and instability, uh, identity politics, confrontation where people cannot have a, a meaningful dialogue on issues about which they disagree without violence, recrimination, and ugliness. How do we get past that as Christians? What, what do we do as Christians? And one of the first things we do is we need to understand what the real problem is. Yes, there is a problem. There is some racism in the country. There are, there are things that need to be corrected, but that's not the underlying problem. And the gospel always drives us to the underlying problem. And I want to start off, uh, and it's in your bulletin, reading from John 16, beginning at verse 5, where Jesus is describing the coming and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's trying to teach his disciples that though I am going, I am sending the Holy Spirit in my place who will be with you all the time. And this is what he teaches them about the purpose of the Holy Spirit. He says, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. 
For I, if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And listen to this. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Uh, right now, we're living in a world of mutual recrimination. People see themselves as victims and others as victimizers. Or they see themselves as the oppressed and others as the oppressor. And it leads to uh, very difficult political and social alignments. Uh, and the, you've heard it, the perceived victims cry out, you're the victimizer, you're the oppressor. And even if you're not actively oppressing, you're passively oppressing. And even if you're not passively oppressing, you are benefiting from the oppression of your forebears. You built America on the backs of slaves. You are the beneficiaries of white privilege. And the perceived victimizers cry out, you're always complaining. I have never owned a slave. My family's never owned a slave. I have never victimized you or any other black person. Instead of wallowing in your victimhood, take charge of your life. Go get a job. Get to do something. And the battle just rages on. And each group feels wrong, wronged. And each group feels that it is being treated unfairly. Now, each group has some truth to talk about. Blacks point to slavery and systemic racism that existed in the past and insist the vestiges still permeate society today. Whites say, look, my parents worked hard. I come from a working class family. They worked hard for what they got. Nothing was given to me. I had to work hard for what I have. Each can justifiably point to the sins of the other. Both are right and both are wrong. Jesus steps into this incredible fray and he makes a more incredible statement about the Holy Spirit and blows both positions out of the water. Each position is laid bare as missing the point by a country mile. So let me explain first the difference between transgressions and sin. Because you will read in the Bible, it'll talk about transgressions and sin, and you might think it's a redundancy. It's just saying the same thing. She's beautiful, she's lovely. It's not saying that. It's saying something different. Transgressions are the violations of a known law or statute. Parking on the right, wrong side of the street. Driving over 70 miles per hour in a 60 mile per hour zone. Um, throwing rocks at cars. These, you're violating a specific statute or law. That's a transgression. 
but uh, and Jesus says to to but sin in the Bible doesn't refer to distinct acts. It refers to that thing in us that drives us to transgression. So Jesus says to both groups, you're right about the other, but you're only hitting the surface problem. He says the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. See, every religion teaches you how to become righteous, how to deal with transgressions. Uh, you fast a certain amount. You worship on certain days. You don't eat certain food. They will give you a formula for being righteous within their paradigm. Christianity is the only religion that says, well, we're not just going to deal with the sins, the transgression. We're going to deal with your sinful nature out of which transgressions grow. I am going to make you new inside so that you won't want to do the things that you are doing. The underlying sin, Jesus tells us, the predominant and driving sin of man, which is the prodigious seed from which all sins spring, is the failure to believe Jesus and to submit to his authority. The underlying sin from which all transgressions grow are the refusal to submit to the authority of Jesus and believe who he is. Saying someone is racist may be true, but it allows the accuser to look past his own sin and see only the sin of the racist. On the other hand, the person who is a racist may say, well, you're just getting what you deserve. Don't blame me for your own problems. Or the person who's not a racist says, that's unfair. You don't even know me. You just lumped me into a category without even knowing me. You're racist toward me. Then Jesus arrives and tells all these people, all, all their different sins, you may not have this particular sin, and you may not have that particular sin, but you have the same sinful nature from which all sins grow. And when you realize that you have the same sinful nature, it changes your approach to other people. You may be black and the victim of racism, but you have the same sin nature that's in the leader of the Ku Klux Klan. You may be white and never knowingly discriminated against black people, but you have the same sinful nature as a slave master or a KKK member. We all do. We're all in a fastly seeking boat. Racism is wrong. It's evil. But it is only the surface both perceived victim and perceived victimizer have the same exact problem. A sin nature that says to God, to Jesus, I don't want to do that. I refuse to submit to your authority. I want to do things 
my own way. I, I'm autonomous. I want to do it my way. Jesus did not come simply to free us from sins, which is important and very valuable. He came to free us from our sin nature. Not just our sins are nailed to the cross, but our sinful nature from which sin spring was nailed to the cross. And the Holy Spirit indwells us and shows us this truth. He came to shut down the sin factory in all of us. Now that moves me to my second point. So the first point is, we need to look at the problem underneath the problem. If somebody calls me a racist, I can comfortably say, I'm not a racist. But oh my goodness. There are things that I have done and it go in my heart and in my mind. Thank goodness you don't know about them. So not only do we need to understand the problem beneath the problem, because if we don't, we can become so self-satisfied that I'm, you know, I don't treat black people badly. I'm not a, I'm racist. And we think the problem is solved. Or black people say, well, you are a racist. I've, I've found you out. I've exposed you. And I feel self-satisfied in my condemnation. And both of us haven't faced the mirror that the Holy Spirit puts in front of us that says, yes, you don't do that sin, but oh, my goodness, the sins you do commit the sinful nature that guides your every thought, word, and deed is just vile. So we not only need to understand the problem underneath the problem, we need to engage in the real battle. So let me read now from Ephesians chapter 6, and that's also in your bulletin. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now listen to this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in high places. And you have to understand that the Greek word that's translated Satan is not the Greek word for deceiver. It's the Greek word for accuser. So Satan will get in the mouth of somebody and somebody and they start accusing, you're a racist, you do this, you don't do that. And so he accuses one group of being a victimizer and he just beats that drum, just beats it. And he goes to another group and says, oh, you're, you're the victim. You need to stand up for yourself. And he just beats that drum furiously. Accusation against counter-accusation. Satan doesn't care which side you are on so long as you are distracted from the real battle. Satan knows that if we get caught up politically or emotionally, emotionally with the battle of white versus black, we're going to miss the real battle the battle over our souls. We can shadow box as much as we want so long as we are sliding down to hell. 
Satan wins either way. So let me talk to you a little bit about Daniel. And you're going to find an excerpt from the book of Daniel in your program, Daniel 10. So Daniel is a Hebrew. He lived in Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. And the Babylonians came, they captured, they overwhelmed Judah and took the people captive, especially those of noble birth. And the idea was they would be either beaten or assimilated into Babylonian culture. So Daniel is now pretty much an old man. He has to be probably in his, at least in his 70s. Oh, wait a minute. That's actually a young man. <laughs> I, I misspoke. Correct that, okay? So Daniel is a young man in his 70s. Um, and he has heard the prophet Jeremiah, who was his contemporary, preach that God says to his people, you will be captives in Babylon for 70 years, and then I will send you back home. And Daniel starts counting, and he realizes the 70 years is almost up. It's almost up. So he's got a lot of options because he knows that Jeremiah is God's prophet. I know we can raise an insurrection against Babylon. Maybe we'll go on a hunger strike. Maybe we will sneak out. We will try to flee away. In other words, we are going to have a political solution to what people see as a political problem. We're going to take it into our own hands. But Daniel understood that the battle was spiritual, not physical. He knew that they were not going to free themselves. God said, I will free you, and I will send you back to Judah. We must spiritually engage in the real battle. Daniel could have led a protest march or an insurrection, but he understood that the battle was spiritual, not physical. And that is why he fasted and prayed. Now, Daniel was not elected by the Hebrew people to be their spokesperson. I would imagine that some of them even thought he was the Hebrew equivalent of an Uncle Tom because he was a high official within the Babylonian government. But I want to read from Daniel chapter 10 that's in your bulletin. And I'm, it says, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the, the gleam of burnished bronze. And then he jumps down and the an and angel, not the same person, but an angel says, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright because Daniel had fainted. 
For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said to me, listen to this, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. And so Daniel, 21 days earlier, understanding the import of Jeremiah's prophecy about the liberation of the Hebrew people in Babylon, and knowing the faithfulness of God, fell down on his face before God and prayed an intercessory prayer on behalf of the Hebrew captives. And he spoke about we. I'm going to read just part of it from chapter 7. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame, as at this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. And then he ends his prayer, he goes on, still confessing the sins of the people on behalf of the people. And he says, and he closes, O Lord, for we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousnesses, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So I commend that prayer to you. I've shortened it considerably for sake of time. But that was his prayer on behalf of the people. None of the people knew he was praying, except maybe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but no, no one else. So we had to understand the problem underneath the problem that really drives the conflict. We have to understand that we are engaging in a spiritual battle, not a political one. But then my third point is we need to understand the true victory. We need to understand what will be the outcome. And for this, again, in your bulletins, I turn you to Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4, 
And then Revelation, yes. Here's um, the Apostle John speaking. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he will be their God. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So we must not only understand the problem beneath the problem, we must not only understand the spiritual nature of the battle we're in, we need to understand the outcome, which is not in our hands. It is in the hands of the God who created us and loved us. The liberation of the Hebrew people was not in the hands of the Hebrew people. It was in the hands of the loving God who created them and cared for them. God is preparing a kingdom for us. This passage tells us that although we are Americans and proud Americans, our true citizenship is in the new heaven and the new earth where Jesus lives and reigns. Jesus will wipe away all our sins and he will exchange his nature for our sinful nature. And he does that as evidenced right now by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We must submit to current rulers, whoever they are, because the divine ruler commands us to do so. Our divine ruler commands us to be good citizens because he is sovereignly preparing us for citizenship in his kingdom. We are not supposed to disengage from this world as though this world is irrelevant or beneath us. On the other hand, we are not supposed to live as though this world is our only home and condemn anybody who we perceive as threatening it. This home is not our only citizenship. And when we think that, we kind of go, anything goes because I'm protecting home. We engage with this world under the authority of Jesus Christ as he prepares us to live in the kingdom which he sovereignly and single-handedly prepares for us. When the Hebrew people left Egypt and moved into the promised land, Jesus told them, you're going to live in houses that you did not build. You're going to reap harvests that you did not plant. You're going to drink wine made from grapes that you, you, you did not even care for. I arranged this for you. The new heaven, and that is just a, an earthly picture of an infinitely larger truth, that Jesus prepares for us a kingdom and has put in our hearts 
an awakening knowledge of our citizenship. So we act as citizens first and foremost of the kingdom for which we are being prepared. That kingdom for which we are being prepared does not allow violence or hatred or racism or condemnation. And it doesn't allow us to look away from our own sinful nature. It compels us to continually grow to the cross and thank God for what he has done for us. So he's made this promise to us. He will dwell with us. We will be his people. And he himself will be our God. He's not sending a surrogate. He himself will be our God. Now here's an amazing thing. God is not saving us because we are sons and daughters. Before he saved us, we were his enemies. When our children were quite small, we took a trip to Northern California, and we were staying with another family on Lake Junaluska. And while we were, you had to take a boat from where we were across the lake to get to the place where we were staying. And taking a piece of luggage out of our van, I was heavy and I swung it and it hit Quentin, he was five years old, and he pushed him into the water, deep water. And without any thought, I didn't stand there and say, what do I do? I jumped in. I went to him, I grabbed him, I pulled him up, and I lifted him up, and Dana and pulled him out of the water. Now, I did that because he's my son. But Jesus jumped, now, and if I had known that the only way I could save him was stay under the water long enough to push him up and he'd be grabbed, even if it meant I would drown, I would do it because he's my son. But Jesus saw us in the deep end, and he jumped in and stayed under and drowned so that we could be lifted up and saved. That drowning is the cross. He did not avoid it. He went under and stayed under. But by all praise, he rose on the third day. So Jesus did not come to us because we were sons and daughters. He came to us as his enemies. And having saved us, then he makes us his sons and daughters. Well, we share that with every other human being on this planet. All of us start out as enemies of God. I don't care how sweet we are. We all have in us that thing that says to God, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to submit to your authority. He jumps in anyway. Because I tell you, before I was saved, there was only one thing you can say about me. I lived as an enemy of God. And I, I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you it was kind of like a badge of honor. He saved me. 
notwithstanding that I was his enemy. So friends, unless we are overwhelmed by grace, we will never, we will always resist the demands of grace. Let me say that again. Unless we are overwhelmed by grace, we will always resist when grace says, I want you to go to that person and invite them to your house. That person is being mistreated. I want you to stand in and put your arm around him and let him know or let her know that you're with her. No matter what anybody else says, no matter what anybody else calls him, I'm with you. Because we were saved as enemies, because God is preparing us to live an eternity with him as sons and daughters, because we are overwhelmed by the grace extended to us, we reach out to others as Christ's ambassadors in his name and for his glory. Race ceases to be the relevant thing. Christ is all. You may recall that on September 20, our pastor called for the congregation to pray every day for racial reconciliation in our country until Election Day on November 4. He wanted us to begin this prayer campaign the next Thursday, which was Thursday, September 24, and to end on Election Day. Inwardly, I committed to join in that prayer effort. But throughout the summer of this year, I have been reading and rereading and rereading the book of Daniel. I just felt led to do so. And then occasionally I would turn from the book of Daniel and read the book of Revelation because they go together. Um, so I, Daniel and Revelation. Daniel and Revelation. And I said, you know, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to enable me to fast for 21 days like Daniel did. Now, you can look at me and know that fasting is not my pastime. I like to eat. So I prayed. Holy Spirit, enable me to fast for 21 days without obsessing about food, without weakness, no negative side effects, keeping up my regular schedule, just give me the strength uh, and turn my attention to confession and repentance. So, I began my fast on Thursday, September 24. I continued for 21 days until October 15 when I resumed eating. During this period of fasting, I drank, or tried to drink 48 ounces of water a day. I ate no food. I drank only water. I had no juice. I had no coffee. I had no power bars. And I would, in the morning, get up and either lie on my stomach or lie on my back and intercede. 
So this is how I prayed. I said, oh God, you are the creator of the universe and all that is in it. You alone in the universe are unique. You are not the greatest God among many or few. You are the only God. There is no God but you. You are not accountable to anyone. You are the creator and everything else is creating creation. You are the divine cause. Everything else is effect. You alone are eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient, self-sustaining, and unchangeable. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You do not need anyone or anything. You are dependent on no one but yourself. No one can add to your being or subtract from it. We cannot increase or decrease your glory. You alone are autonomous. You are answerable to no one but yourself. You have always been and always will be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are righteous and you dwell in righteousness. There is no truth or righteousness apart from you. You alone are truly just. You are impeccable. You are unstained, untouched by sin. You are right in all your doings. You zealously guard your promises and you keep all of them. You do not lie or exaggerate because you because you are truth. I do not enter your presence on my own merit because I have none. By right you should destroy me. I am utterly detestable before you. But because of your loving kindness and mercy, you have clothed me in the precious blood of Christ. It is by his righteousness that I am allowed to enter into your presence and address you as Father. I have no righteousness of my own. The only righteousness I have has been imputed to me by your precious Son. He died for me that I might live in him and in him stand before you in eternity. He is my God. He is the Savior of my soul. He is the Ancient of Days who has uplifted me from the dust and made me joint heir with him of everything in the universe. I come only in his name and not in the name of any other. I come on behalf of all Americans. I confess and repent for the terrible institution of slavery which existed for centuries in this country. And when it ended, I and my forebears were responsible for systemic racism, which was designed to oppress and suppress black people. And when systemic racism ended, I persisted in the allowance of negative racial attitudes to exist and thrive. I've benefited from them. We've kept our mouths silent. When we spoke, we spoke feebly. We did little or nothing to relieve the misery of our brothers. We have refused to admit the existence of racism in our own hearts and in the hearts of our forebears. We refuse to humble ourselves before you. We have refused to see or admit any wrong. We have denied the command that we love one another or do unto others as we would have them do unto us. We have regarded those as one-sided commandments. We have a right to claim them, but no obligation to perform them. I have stopped, we have stopped turning to you. We have sought our own way. We have wanted to be autonomous. We have refused to listen to you. 
We have no room for you. We have inclined our ear to other voices. We have given our affections to another. We have denied the reality and power of Jesus Christ. We celebrate Christmas gifts, but not Christ, who is the divine gift. We are entitled to no mercy. We are only entitled to your divine mercy, and yet, Jesus Christ, we are able to plead for mercy because you are a God of loving kindness. You've been the universe, you've, you've bent the universe in order to express your kindness and love toward us. Open our hearts to all people, regardless of race, ethnicity, culture, or background. Cause the love of Jesus Christ to flow in us and out of us and out from us to others. You are not a respecter of persons. Please make us likewise. Please give us courage to speak out. Please give us the humility to admit our own sinfulness and prejudice. Please lift us above these things that we might see men as you see them. And I also come to you now on behalf of black people. I, O oh God, am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. We used to be a godly people. In our suffering and oppression, we turned to you. We cried out to you. We saw in Jesus Christ the master of our freedom from slavery. We were made slaves involuntarily, but you became a slave of your own volition in order to free us. Men put shackles on our hands and feet, and we were powerless to resist them. But you, O omnipotent one, set aside your power and allowed yourself to be chained, then beaten, then crucified in order that we may be free and have a relationship with the living God for all eternity. You became a slave like us so that we could live with, in freedom with you for all eternity. There was a time when we understood this. Our churches were filled with people who cried out to you, who believed you, who knew Jesus is our Savior, Lord, and Redeemer, but we have turned away. Like sheep, we have gone our own way. We have tried to push you off your throne, which, of course, we cannot do. But we have built our own thrones and placed on those thrones politics and welfare and social programs. We have decided that we do not want your help. We do not, we want to be our own savior. We want to say, look what I have done, rather than look at what our God has done for us. We have refused to look at the cross and instead looked at the marketplace and the government. As a result of this, we have done great evil. As men, we have abandoned our wives and families. We have sex with women who are not our wives. When, we get, when they get pregnant, we abandon them. We think we're doing them a favor if we come around once or twice a year with some paltry gift. We have not been husbands. We have not been fathers. We have bragged about our sexual prowess. We are like the Canaanites who sacrificed their children to Baal. Our God has become self, worldly success, and worldly approval. Redress, address women by the B word. We address ourselves by the N word. Since uh, Roe versus Wade, we have aborted more than 20 million black babies. Oh God, I heard that in 2019, more black babies were aborted in New York City than were born. We are killing ourselves. We are drinking our own poison. We make with our own hands and we dance while doing it. We have let the government take away our manhood and our fatherhood. We have blamed others for all our problems. We have surrounded ourselves with the worst evils. We are making Canaan look like a righteous company, country by the number of black babies we have murdered. We have allowed our women to think it is better for them to have babies out of wedlock supported by the government through welfare 
than for us to be fathers in the home and to raise our children under your hand. Now our women have babies and take money to have babies and the government pays them to have babies and the government pays them to have no fathers in the home. We are killing ourselves. We are rowing furiously to the waterfall, not seeing the utter destruction that awaits us. We row faster to the end, singing as we perish. The waterfall is getting closer and we're still rowing and still singing. We don't turn to you. When we reach out, when you reach out your arms to us, we slap them away. We cry Black Lives Matter while we kill each other in our own neighborhoods. We murder each other. Like Lamech, we brag about our violence. We revel in it. We are bound for destruction unless you intervene to stop us. Please have mercy upon us. Do not take your hands from us. Lead us from this self-destruction and bring us into the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Cause our men to love and support our women. Cause our women to be in union with their husbands. Cause us men to be loving, attentive, and faithful husbands and fathers. Cause our children to submit to the authority of their parents. Cause us to cry out to you and not to the government or anyone else. Save us from ourselves. Oh God, you who are utterly faithful, open our hearts so that we plead for Jesus and long for him so that we don't want anyone else but Jesus, Jesus to govern our lives. Cause us to put our wills into his loving hands that we may seek to obey him in all that we do. Oh God, please rescue us. Let's pray. Lord God, we are utterly dependent upon you for all things. Were you not gracious, long-suffering, and forbearing? We should all hide under rocks or in caves. But Jesus has said that we can come boldly into your presence because of him. We come in his name under his authority, and we ask you, help us, forgive us, cause us to live rightly in a way that pleases you, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.